This is season two of Kenya's Blueprint. A look at our country's policies, what works, what doesn't, and what would have been done better. Season two is covered across four episodes featuring a number of voices, some notable ones. This is an Acute Media Original, and I am your host, Timothy Gatimo. Vision 2030. A pathway to a future we envisioned was laid, but the most important questions is for the past 15 years, have we been following it? To me, this was a litmus test for a number of issues or elements. All these questions, I believe, are under one umbrella of a question, or a grand question. The grand question is, are Kenyans privy to what parts they play in this development program? As a mamamboga, as an MP, as a judge, as the president, we all have parts to play, but are we doing what's required? Well, I've had a number of interactions with various Kenyans for the past three months, since most Kenyans don't understand the basics of this vision. A room for misconceptions and misunderstandings pop up. This autopilot mode does not only affect those being governed, it is even more shocking that the people in power tend to act the same way. Discussions of where we should be going as a country were mostly tied to the current leaders and manifestos. Also, a big misconception most people that I engaged with had was when I mentioned the blueprint. People only thought of infrastructure development. This led us into settling on this topic for season two. Most Kenyans do not keep tabs on the progress we have made in relation to the vision. 2030 is almost here, and it is only right we have a look back at our success and our failures. I think it's important for any, any government or even corporate world or an individual to really look forward and see the years down the road, where would I be? Uh, it's at the individual level, it's at the company level, it's at the country level. Uh, we have uh, uh, even the international community, uh, SDG, Sustainable Development Goals 2030. And when that is Professor Wainaina Gituro. Now, when we started this project, we realized it is essential to feature a number of Kenyan voices. The vision was geared towards bettering our lives as Kenyans, isn't it? Among those voices, we wanted one that was part of the development and making of the vision. Mr. Gituro was present during this process. His voice will feature numerous times this season. First, it was only right we also do research on the timelines of development in Kenya from the 1960s to 2007. Then look at the formation of the vision. The progress made so far and then collecting feedback from various stakeholders and Kenyans in general. Why does this matter? Well, during my research period, I happened to realize the vision isn't as embedded in our core as it should be. I believe most development should be geared towards reaching Vision 2030. Likewise, any negative occurrence, man-made or not, affects us achieving it. This can be from the COVID-19 pandemic, MPs throwing jabs in parliament, a terrorist attack, or us not playing our role towards achieving our goal. This season seeks to look at this Vision 2030 blueprint launched on the 10th of June 2008 and what you have done or intended to do, whether socially, economically, or politically, that builds it or destroys it.
This is 1963. Kenya has become independent. The key challenges facing Kenya at this time were poverty, ignorance, and disease. With these key challenges and others, a plan had to be devised. A plan that seeks to counter the said problems. In the first one and a half years, the government of the day led by Mzee Jomo Kenyatta was keen on putting measures that would ensure rapid economic development and social progress for all Kenyans. With this, we saw a budget statement and most importantly a development plan covering the years 1964 to 1970. From the onset, we were planners, plans with visions, goals and ambition. The National Development Plan for the period 1964 to 1970 was geared towards having an increase of the total resources available to the nation towards the rural areas. At that time, it was viewed as being far more ambitious. Within this years, we saw a large-scale foreign investment and industry doubling. After this followed other nationwide plans like the National Development Plan for the period 1997 to 2001. whose strategy was to address industrialization further down the road new plans were formulated and other existing ones were readjusted to align with the changing economic social and political landscape with the introduction of county governments counties had to have their development plans for instance the migori county integrated development plan of 2018 to 2022 mimi daniel roy jarab moy naaba kwamba Nitatenda kazi zangu za urais wa Jamhuri ya Kenya kwa waaminifu na kutimiza wajibu wa kazi hizo kwa bidii na kwa moyo mkujufu na kwamba nitawatendea haki watu wote kwa mujibu wa sheria mila na desturi za Jamhuri ya Kenya bila woga ubendeleo kuba wala chuki ewe Mwenyezi Mungu nisaidie During Daniel Moy's tenure we witnessed a few growths the nation became a multi-party democracy a few economic developments like the opening of the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport university education expansion took place but Kenya remained poor Despite the dismal performance the economy remained above other East African countries I think again is is very clear that uh, we are having a society uh, of representation of people within the uh, the parliament who are basically bent on what I would call a scratch my back a scratch your back if anything is going to be able to go through that is not benefiting to that particular individual then there's a lot of acrimony that is always seen within the floor of the parliament but when you hear a motion that goes through and everybody is coalescing around that particular uh, particular item it means that there is a catch for them and therefore for them to be able to articulate the issues that are really uh, of a greater concern to this nation it is very hard unless the risks are taken for them and so just to be able to say what is the thing that is going to be able to benefit our people uh, with disregard to i as an individual which is basically what leadership is supposed to be that is francis During the production of this season, my producer had a chat with him and covered various topics in regard to Vision 2030. This sentiment mirrors what the situation is like during most of our president's time in office and how our leaders act. Leadership is critical for a country's performance and growth. 
the choices of the leaders have an impact on how a country performs economically. The leaders decide how resource allocation is done, tame corruption, and ensure accountability. For instance, during Moe's tenure, we had a number of negative effects on Kenyans, courtesy of our leaders. Inflation reached a record high of 100% after the 1992 elections. The cost of living doubled. A loaf of bread doubled from 7 Kenyan shillings to 15 Kenyan shillings. For a more narrowed look at how certain decisions affected the economy of this country, I would suggest that you listen to the season one of this series. Here is a snippet where I was having a conversation with Professor Karuti Kanyinga on the mismanagement of KCC. To mismanage this parasato during the period of President Daniel Arab Moy. Yes. The mismanagement mm -hmm. was exacerbated mostly by A, mm -hmm. how the Minister of Cooperatives supervised elections of local cooperatives mm -hmm. di directors. Mm -hmm and also the KCC directors themselves. Mm -hmm. The government preferred to see loyal the shareholders uh -huh. to run KCC so that the interest of the government rather than the interest of the farmers mm. would be managed and would be prioritized. It, there came a time actually where even President Moi's relatives themselves would be fronted to run for just by the few examples in this introduction, what do you make of Kenya's planning and growth at a glance? We have never been short of plans, visions, roadmaps, you name it. Perhaps something to think about. How well has our 2010 constitution been implemented? In this second season of Kenya's blueprint, we'll look at Vision 2030, our blueprint towards development. With 15 years or so into the vision, what would you make of the progress so far? Vision 2030 succeeded the economic recovery strategy for wealth and employment creation that covered the years 2003 to 2007. This was effected when NAC took over with Moi Kibaki as the president. An economic recovery strategy was crucial at this point. To recover from the mess of the previous regime, the plan led to a growth of the economy from 0.6% to 7% in 2007. Infrastructure was being improved. Students in public schools had begun learning for free. Debt to GDP reduced to 20% from 80%. And there was an increase in public universities that starred economic activities in the various towns. This upward trajectory inspired the need for a long-term development plan. This led to the development of Vision 2030. Now, remember at the start of this episode, I briefly talked about the national development plans. These were conventional five-year planning cycles that we had adopted as a country. Vision 2030 was to be implemented in a somewhat similar pattern. This was to be done in five-year successive medium-term plans. The period of the coalition government, 2008 to 2013, served as the first five-year development cycle of Vision 2030. The second one covered the period 2013 to 2017. This one was themed Transforming Kenya pathway to devolution, social economic development, equity and national unity, which was launched by Uhuru Kenyatta. The third plan, referred to as Medium Term Plan 3 for years 2018 to 2022, is under implementation at the time of this podcast recording. This Medium Term Plan 3 focuses on the implementation of the Big Four Agenda, which includes 
housing, food and nutrition security, manufacturing, and universal health coverage. So what are some of the medium-term plans the professor has been part of? Even before we get to that, let us have his overview of the medium-term plans. Five years. It replaced what used to have development plans. Now, the medium-term plan, uh, and have opportunity right now to evaluate the third one. What are the lessons? What are the recommendations? Uh, we're really now to actualize in terms of what the things we want to do. I say the uh, constitution was one of them. The SGR was the, uh, the megawatts. Now we have about 3,000 megawatts. We had targeted 5,000, making progress. And you take it now, it was, you take it from the three pillars. Later on, we will look at some of the projects that were to be undertaken under these medium-term plans. Enter Kibaki. How was his approach towards the making of this vision? Because I understand that there were some elements of benchmarking and drawing inspiration from other countries. How did it influence this process? Uh, he, he, he was very clear that we must have a vision for this country. Uh, we didn't have any, we just used to have development plans. But the long view of where the country wants to be, we didn't have. And uh, he was very clear that we must provide high quality for all Kenyans. Not like what people, perhaps later we see people are dying because of drought, hunger and all that. But how do we, what's the perk for high quality for all Kenyans? And uh, he therefore was clear that I want, and this had inspiration from countries like Singapore, the Lee Kuan Yew, Malaysia, uh, UK, other developed economies. And he said in the, up to 2030, we need to create a vision for this country. And he put everything into motion in terms of the task force to look at what should this country be, uh, the, his regime was very clear, uh, and I think that's where the end. Now you look backwards, that high quality for Kenya. It doesn't matter whether you come from Injera, whether you come from uh, Bugoma, uh, or whether you come from Boy, high quality for Kenya. And he looked what that entails, uh, formed our working team task force, and uh, we did a debated and uh, got, and he was very I don't want things complicated. I want something he said we can follow as a country. And for that purpose, I want you to go to Malaysia. I want to go wherever you can think is important and have see what they have done. And therefore, after going all these places, we, we came very clear in terms of our vision. And uh, one. Kenya Vision 2030 was launched on 10th June 2008 and passed by the 10th Parliament. Its development process was launched by His Excellency President Mwai Kibaki on 30th October 2006, aimed to transform Kenya into a newly industrializing middle-income country, providing a high-quality life to all its citizens by the year 2030. This is to be achieved in a clean and secure environment. Before carrying on forward, I would like to point something out. Matters public participation. 
The formulation of this vision records numerous public participation processes. Public participation processes tend to reveal that we are a few steps behind despite having a legal framework. Public participation, that is one of the gains of the 2010 Constitution under Article 10, International Value and Principle of Governance, and it cuts across um, you know, lawmaking that is under the legislature, under the executive, all arms of government must have space for public participation. So and it's again under the 2010 Constitution, and we've seen a number of laws being nullified on the ground that the public did not get to participate. So public participation is still a factor. Yeah. How do we get Kenyans to participate? There are various ways in which Kenyans can uh, participate in major decisions, major policies that affect them. That is, either they submit memoranda, they can petition parliament to consider an issue, to debate on an issue. They can also attend public gatherings. And actually, these arms of government are under a positive, they have a positive obligation. They owe it to us to provide facilities for us to give them our views, whether it is through the internet, whether it is through the radio. Um, a number of that is Elsie Dulo. She's an advocate at the School of Law. She's also my co-host on a podcast called Proactive. Also, expect some more insights from her this season. Even with vigorous public participation on the onset, the aim of the vision, or the vision as a general, raises a number of questions thoughts, or concerns. Reading and researching made me realize that more clarification is needed. Exploring industrialization as an example, a concept embraced by many developing countries as a way of transforming the economy, it has sometimes been subject to inconsistencies or trade-offs, like a conflict between focusing growth and development in high-potential areas such as the Mombasa-Nairobi-Kisumu corridor, or aiming for a nationwide distributed industrialization. Of course, there are factors like the availability of resources to influence how industrialization is done. But my concern would be what are some of the underlying factors that influence decisions in industrialization in the vision. The components of the vision were put together by a core team that consisted of experienced technical officers drawn from the government, Kenyan research institutions, international consultants, and the private sector. The professor briefly talked about the importance of this team and lists some of the individuals that have been in some of the leading roles. But he said, no, 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 ideas are great. Ideas, they need to move forward and form the, what he called the vision delivery board. Vision delivery board. And uh, as in corporate world, uh, we know that when you have a board, then you have management. So... Vision 2030, Delivery Secretariat, was therefore the management, if you look in corporate world, for the Vision Delivery Board. And uh, the board had very strong, very, very strong people. The first chair was Mwangi of Equity, James, a very vibrant, very strong man. Uh, you can see how he has taken the bank. He's the first Kenyan to venture into DRC even before to join the community. And uh, very strong, we had PSs. Uh, we had people from the private sector, non-state actors, and it was chaired by the head of public service. That's Mudara himself. And we meet, used to meet once a month, last Friday of the month. And what was very interesting was, uh, we used to meet at Kenya School of Government, uh, and it was one of the flagships actually at the political period to move it from KIA 
Kenya's Job Administration of the Kenya School of Government. Mm -hmm. And we had a very strong, uh, we wanted to have a Kenya School of Government in Africa because there's one in the East Likwanyu and there's one in America, Kennedy School of Government. So we wanted to have one in the middle. And we got that working. So Mudaura would chair and he would give the PSAs, we have discussed this, this, go implement the letter of instruction is coming on Monday. Mm. It's a Friday. So we made tremendous progress. Tremendous progress in terms of moving. Because he was cheering. Uh, of course, uh, at one point, the ICC caught up with us and uh, we had whatever happened. Then the second is now, the, the, the second uh, uh, chair of the board is uh, the lady at the breweries, East African breweries, uh, Jane Karuku, uh, also doing a, a fantastic job. Uh, but uh, we, um, it, it's good to reflect back and uh, look the two... With the coverage of Vision 2030 in this podcast series, we aim to look at how we have set ourselves as a country to achieve the goals and ultimately address some of my concerns and yours too. Vision 2030 comprises of three key pillars, economic, social, and political. These three pillars are anchored on a foundation. The enablers and macro sectors in the foundation provide firm support to the three pillars. Some of the sectors are national values and ethics, infrastructure, public sector reforms, science, technology, and innovation. Without the foundation, the development of the three pillars is not as effective. At times, it is not possible. Three, the number of pillars. At first, or during my research period, I trivialized this. I did not ask myself why three pillars, why not four, why not five. Here was my analogy during my slight moment of oblivion. What are the areas to look at when improving one's life? Well, we will look at governance, social well-being, and the economy. But there was more than meets the eye. And here it is. Uh, if you look at Botswana 20, up to 2016, it had seven pillars. As we all know, when you're building a house, the pillars say so. And uh, we therefore be debated. Oh, I can remember the debates were old, uh, saying environment should be a pillar, gender should be a pillar, uh, eventually, we settled for three pillars. We settled for the economic pillar, we settled for the social pillar, and the political pillar. Our wisdom was driven by the, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. You know, and we also driven by the famous African stool, it's three-legged. So we came with three, yeah? and that stool is very, very, very strong. Before we continue, there was an important turn come 2013. Call it refining of this idea or the process. Uh, about 2013-14, you said, uh, uh this, this vision is just hard stuff. It's just hard things we are doing. Uh, if you look at, uh, and I like comparing with the Botswana, in Botswana, they started with soft skills. So we found, it just, this Peter doesn't have a soul. So we now came with the values. And I uh, uh, appreciate uh, Dr. Julius Muya, who is now the PS Treasury. He actually formed a team, I was lucky I was in it. And we came now with this, what is the social part? What makes us Utu? What makes us human beings? 
uh, and what will transform us from a country to a nation, the values. Uh, when we came to the three pillars, we step back a bit. Uh, we wanted the best of the best. And uh, Mudaura was the head of the public service by then. His wisdom, we engaged Mackenzie, uh, a very strong renewed uh, farm in the world, and has done a lot of uh, visions for countries. Um, extremely good, uh, but had shortcomings in the political and the social pillar. But the economic, they were perfect. So some of us were given the opportunity, I must call it that way, to come and help work in the, the two other peers. And I was uh, given that opportunity to work with the social pillar while we do all this. Um, For the foundation, we'll look at the four that I have listed. First, I look at how infrastructure is crucial to the three pillars. Today, I happen to be in the uh, Kenya Defense Forces in Ebakasi. And because of the, the roads, the outer lane, I took about 20 minutes to town. Uh, so infrastructure, loads, SGR became extremely important. So those are the enabler. Looking back at the Jubilee tenor and towards the end of Kibaki's presidency, we see efforts put into major infrastructure projects. At the time of this recording, we were just a few months away from the completion of the Nairobi Expressway. By the year 2030, the country's vision is to have a network of roads, railways, ports, airports, water and sanitation facilities joining one part of the country to another. For our political systems to work more efficiently, for more improvements to be made socially, and for our economy to thrive, investment in our infrastructure establishments and services should be highly considered. Allow me to mention a few intended projects and achievements. The Nairobi Thika Highway, completed back in 2012, the construction of the Standard Gauge Railway Line, completion of the Makadara and Imara Daima stations, increasing electricity access and electricity availability through upgrading and expansion of national power transmission and transmission networks. Now, despite making some progress like 1 million new customers connected, the electricity subject has always been contentious and at times marred with scandals. Aror and Kimwarer, electricity costs and levies and at times nationwide blackouts. A walkthrough infrastructure isn't complete without a look at the Lapset Corridor program, sometimes termed as overambitious. This mega project, consisting of seven key infrastructure projects, deserves a standalone podcast. But so far, some basic infrastructure under this project are done. One subtle project compared to the ones I have just gone through in the last few minutes is developing a major motion picture production industry under the film industry, an industry that little has been done so far. Earlier this year, I came across an empowerment program run by the Kenya Film Commission in collaboration with a German development agency. So, is there any significant improvements observed by the filmmakers? A major concern for Kenya's infrastructure projects has always been viability and justification of cost. I mean, even the 26 to 27 kilometer expressway that is not even done has some quarters rattled. Right now, what Kenyans are asking is, if it is really for the common good, why do we have to pay for it again? You know, when it comes to usage, I think it is a good thing. Because for me, I always look at the road and coming from a background where people, accessibility of the places that I come from is not very easy. And so with the opening of the road, I think the economy is being opened, the nation is being opened. 
which is a good thing. For me, I would look at it from two aspects. It is beneficial, it is good. We need it to be able to. But in terms of costing, I think it's a challenge. But there are donors who are willing to give that money, of course, uh, for their own benefits. And so in however much I might criticize the fact that we are taking loans to do this, but at the end of the day, the country is developing. We are now having roads that we never had before, right? And uh, it's unfortunate that um, people have to take advantage of such projects and make themselves rich. But at the end of the day, at least we have a, a good infrastructure in place. Well, rattled might have been an overstatement. I love the fact that through my interactions, I was learning. With the expressway, I learned that Kenyans are optimistic about such projects and not entirely dwelling on the negatives. Here's an additional take from Julius, an Akuru resident working in the informal sector. I have looked at the concerns, did my research, and truly, the concerns raise important questions. Questions like, will it really assist in decongesting or reducing traffic in the city? I hope that my words do not make me an naysayer. And also, I'm not giving the project a clean bill of health. In terms of cost and also viability, look at the SGR. The cost has always been contentious, with concerns such as how repayment will be done and the amount used in the project. We are always quick to point fingers at the officials in charge of these projects and forget or ignore the fact that there are times we play a part in some mishap. Mr. Wainaina talked about compensation, citing a period he worked on the Lapset project. Ethiopia corridor. Yeah. I remember going to Ramu. Uh, Francis Mudara was the chair of the Lapset board. And a very interesting scenario we got Dixon here that, um, of course, they knew the port will come up. Happy now is uh, the uptake is on. Uh, have provided tremendous opportunities there. Uh, and that was to be uh, really taken, acquired from, from, the, the, from the, the people there. And one, there was composition there for. And what we found is when you go there, you might go there and say there are 60 families. When you come second time, there are 120 families. And uh, remember, I, I think I do remember correctly, a piece of land was valued by government at about 750,000. Mm. Uh, the private sector had valued for 1.5 M. The community lawyer had valued at 1 million. So depending on the interest, mm -hmm. you can see the variation. Mm. Uh, we, of course, settled for about a million away, but it was still overvalued. The same with SGR. I'm, I'm trying to bring that at times the construction per se is not that expensive, but the things behind it in terms of compensation. Mm. Uh, the SGR, if you compare construction of SGR in Morocco, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Ethiopia, just next door, mm. ours was high and was just a compensation. Okay. And what really happened, perhaps just a quick one here, and it was so sad because you compensate, and we asked, in terms of the, 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 the logic of people depressed by projects, the first alternative is to be given another piece of land, the same quality, if not better. That is always the narrative. 
they all said we want money. Mm. And that is dangerous. Because most of them start going to seashells. Mm. All that kind of stuff. Mm. So what we, we find on the SGR, some of us in this country, which I think is a, it's a terrible attitude. They would actually tell you, Dixon, mm -hmm. this piece of land is worth five million. I put it at 20. Yeah? We'll compensate to you and we'll give you seven. We'll take that in. So you can see how the cost now exaggerate, uh, became uh, in terms of high. Mm -hmm. So that is, infrastructure is great. Uh, it, can, it, it makes you move goods and services and products. So my understanding is that um, we probably need to come tighten in terms of why we acquire land. Uh, there are countries which have, really say, because it's a common good, there are certain prices we have really to pay for that compensation. And, and combination, you know, this cash, 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 some of them are broke right now. Mm. So a combination, maybe get a part of the cash, get a piece of land, or we'll buy shares before here or something else here, so that you sustain the family. They create wealth. So that's perhaps, I would suggest that uh, the second avenue, and I say that I would be comfortable, we need to leverage more on private public partnership. And not necessarily coming from out. Mm -hmm. No. If you look at our local domestic borrowing, institution like NSSF, institution like uh, NSSF, mm -hmm. having a lot of a lot of savings, RBA, it's how we package it, and you can sell it even in a Nairobi securities market, and people will buy. For example, Jomo Kenyatta, we have to do the tech second terminal. The government should not bother. Give one of the corporates, the circles. I'll buy shares in there. Because I am guaranteed of return. So it's how we package that, and then we release that money to other social things like uh, education for the government. Mm. The second foundation I will look at is national values and ethics. The Constitution of Kenya under Article 10 provides the national values and principles of governance. Patriotism, social justice, good governance are a few of the values and principles listed. From the album Sawa Sawa by Eric Wainaina, released over 20 years back, features a song, Inchi Akitukidogo. 20 years down the road, do we see any changes in our values that Eric cited? Artist Serabi also summed up our values nicely by the single Sharia, released back in 2014 a song about the state of our country's politics and the failure of the citizens to take responsibility for their contribution to the corrupt status quo. Uh, from where I, I work, there's always what we are calling uh, the three C's, which basically the three C's stands for character, competence, and care. But I want to be able to look at the character, of which is the essence of what the question that you're asking. It has a ripple effect. The society... Uh, is in that space. Not only even the matatu. I've seen when you are caught, you don't know even the offense that you have committed, but you are already starting to negotiate on how you can be able to give some money so that you may be let loose. We have stopped advocating for what is right. We have stopped advocating for asking, what is my offense? What have I committed wrong that requires me? And can we be also be patient enough to be able to want to be able to see the full extent of the law uh, executed? 
I can always give an example of myself. I've been caught uh, driving and I was stopped and I said I have a record of my offense that you're claiming at your OB in the police station. I was taken there. I wanted to be able to see where would this take me. I was taken to court by two. The charges that were leveled against me even shocked me. I was told you were driving without having your seatbelt on. Well, in the first place, that was not the case. But you see, I could have easily given out money just to be able to be let loose. So it has a ripple effect. But the other thing that I'm playing out is very true that even for those people that have committed those offenses, they have never been taken to a court of law. They are always walking free. So we always think like, okay, let's do this. There's nowhere I'm going to be taken. So like you've said, it's very true. The ripple effect is now a reflection also in the society. So as we point fingers to them, we are also needing to point fingers at ourselves. What are we doing to be able to address that situation? Values are critical to achieving the goals we've set for ourselves. Every Kenyan can play a role or pull backward by reinforcing the systemic flaws, flaws that are guided by greed and lack of ownership. We have all buried our heads in the sand for a very long time. Everyone, yes, I'm talking about the Matatu guy in the traffic cop, or when you speed up at the zebra crossing, throwing that water bottle from your Subaru, or tweet without having done due diligence. A few months to the elections, our walls are already plastered with aspiring leaders' posters. Quite a nuisance. It is that time when publicity is publicity. It does not matter whether it is negative or positive. So brace yourself. The time for unspeakable terms and insults is upon us. Uh, publicity is publicity. Whether it's negative publicity, whether it's uh, positive publicity, at the end of the day, people are still talking about you and not talking about your competitor. And so the more uh, controversial you are, the more airplay you actually get because controversy sells at the end of the day. And I think our media also always looking for something controversial to uh, play to us. Science, technology, and innovation are all critical. They challenge the norm. You're listening to this due to the advancements in media distribution, accessibility of the internet, and sophisticated devices more advanced than what sent a man to the moon. Innovation increases efficiency, creates new jobs, and challenges existing processes. Today, you can comfortably make payments from your phone through the innovation of M-Pesa. Improving our connectivity has given rise to creative content creators that entertain us opening up a new economic opportunities for individuals and a new source of government revenue through digital tax. Events such as Nairobi Innovation Week have given opportunities to push the limits for what is possible. The government is also leading this front with the introduction of Huduma Centers across the country. Platforms such as eCitizens are making it easier to access government services. FMIS which is a work in progress, is centralizing all government tendering processes. And on the education front, now all kids' records are centralized at the Ministry of Education, NEMIS. At the start of 2021, there was a fresh bid for cashless fare payment, a system that failed in terms of implementing a few years back, keenly watching out for the reaction from the stakeholders in the matatu industry, the drivers and the touts, and also the commuters. Before we proceed to the last topic, that we picked under the foundation of the three pillars. I invited Mr. Robert Yawe, an ICT practitioner for over 30 years, to comment on this matter. Here is his take. The easiest way for any corrupt system to function is in a cash economy. And so long as we continue to maintain a cash economy in the transport sector, 
we shall never be able to get rid of corruption in this country. The main reason why cashless fares will almost never take effect in this country is specifically because it oils an entire industry. And the only person who can make us implement this is the taxman, if the taxman decides that they really want to collect tax. Lastly, under the foundation supporting the three pillars, we look at the public sector reforms. How are government-owned and operated organizations providing services to you? What can you say of the service that you were accorded the last time you were in a government office? Was it of quality? How accessible was it? Was it efficient? Or did you need to schedule another visit to redo what you did? And in terms of duration, how long did it take? There is this constant joke of lunch periods in government offices. Here are some of the experiences of two of my respondents. I can say there are some places I've gone and I've wondered, is there somebody to serve people here? Only to find, of course, the famous also uh, quote is always, you find a quote hanging on the chair and the occupant of that office is not around. And so you are thinking like, what did this person come in here to do if uh, people are really uh, queuing out there and nobody's taking care of themselves? Uh, so I would say it is always also dependent on particular individual holder of that particular public office. But there are some that have created that notion that it's always the worst place to be able to go and look for something. For the few times that I've been able to walk into a few offices, and I would, if you allow me, I would quote one of the places that uh, public service was very effective for me, is when I walked into Uhuru Nakazi offices in Mombasa under the auspices or the leadership of former county commissioner. Mr. Nelson Marrow. The, the way I was addressed, the way my what I had gone to look for was able to be taken care of was amazing. And so I for that I thought like if all the offices would operate in this way, I would have been super excited and I would be like applauding all the government offices. Funny enough, uh, actually that time it was it was quite good because um I think what has worked is the fact that I didn't have to come into town to actually get the services done. I walked to the local uh, centers because uh, now everything is distributed, right? I walked to the local centers and basically I was able to be assisted uh, quite quickly. And the same applies for Uduma, the Uduma centers. So it's, it's convenient in the sense that they are distributed in so many locations and you can always get this done. But of course, uh, when you have to go to, uh, say, KRA, for example, it's a whole process. <laughs> Basically, you have to free your day to actually do that. But uh, I think we are better placed now than where we were before because some of these things are becoming digitized. Uh, but of course, there's always room for improvement. From these two excerpts, it is clear that this sector has had a massive improvement. Kudos to the public sector. Just work on or rather tighten the remaining few issues. As a country, we should always strive for more citizen-focused and result-oriented processes under the public service. A good public service will streamline services in the three pillars of the vision. Before we are done with the first episode, let's have a quick overview of the pillars. The political pillar looks at how Kenya has a democratic system reflecting people's wishes and expectations. An issue-based, people-centered, result-oriented system that is accountable to the public. Well, based on this description, I am longing for an immediate further breakdown right now. 
but we'll have an extensive breakdown on episode 2 of this season. The Social Pillar aims for a cohesive and equitable social development society. Here, growth and development are geared towards education and training, health, water and sanitation, the environment, housing and urbanization, gender, youth, sports and culture, equity, and poverty eradication. The economic pillar aims for the improvement of the prosperity of all regions of the country through adding value to our products and services. Adding value to agriculture, tourism, manufacturing, and business process offshoring. This pillar aims to achieve an average economic growth rate of 10% per annum and sustain the same until 2030. The social and economic pillars will feature more extensively in episodes 3 and 4 respectively. A quick look at the implementation shows progress as well as challenges. The Vision 2030 Flagship Projects Progress Report outlines major achievements such as the Nairobi Thika Highway that was completed and commissioned by President Kibaki on the 9th of November 2012 and the completion of Phase 1 Mombasa Nairobi of the SGR. While the flagship projects are the lead in generating growth, they are by no means the only projects that we'll be focusing on as a country. This project set the pace for others planned and executed by the government as well as the private sector. Later on, in subsequent episodes, we will look at how other projects relate to the flagship projects and issues like how the manifestos of political candidates are connected to the vision. How does a proposal of 6,000 shilling stipend to jobless youth or building 11 stadiums across the country align or affect the vision. Lastly, here are some of the not-so-sunny moments that have affected the execution of the vision from 2008 to the present. We had a case of the economy slumping into a decline in 2020. Another economic recession occurred back in 2008 as a result of a global financial crisis. And the 2007-2008 post-election violence and corruption. Also, the highly contentious matter of Kenya's debt cannot be overlooked, with Kenya's debt-to-GDP ratio affecting economic growth and recovery. This has been episode one. Thank you for sticking around till the end. Check out our show notes always, as links to additional resources will always be included. Share the podcast, and also leave a review while you're at it. Kenya's Blueprint is an acute media original.